I saw what I thought was the trail of a large meteor appear, approximately five degrees of arc east of a line between the two pointers and almost exactly in the center of the bowl of the Big Dipper. The trail was of a red color and appeared to be coming down at about an angle of 20 degrees to my line of sight and in a southwesterly direction. Only the red trail was visible for about two seconds and then a small white dot became visible from which the trail was emanating. The trail faded and the object still continued coming down. The speed appeared to be decreasing and I noticed a certain erratic quality to the flight of the object. very spooky, Hannah. Thank you, Anna. Yeah, I was reading an excerpt. Here's the giveaway of our episode this week. We're going to be talking about Project Blue Book, which is all about UFO sightings in the 1950s and the 1960s. If you listen to Off Nominal, where we spoiled it for you, October is going to be our spooky month. Ooh. That's right. <laughs> Woohoo! I was trying to be spooky. <laughs> I felt it. I felt the goosebumps. You get it? I appreciate it. I got you. Bone chilling, if you will. Bone chilling. There you go. Very Halloween appropriate vocabulary. <laughs> this is a good way to celebrate. Both Anna and I are big fans of Halloween, so we really wanted to do two episodes for the month of Halloween that are spooky themed. Hannah, what was your favorite Halloween costume ever? Ooh. My favorite Halloween costume, I did this thing with my with a couple of my friends in college. We were different sorts of aliens, but then we were like pageant alien winners. <laughs> so it was like Miss Andromeda and then Miss Milky Way. And it was really fun because we could dress up in like pretty dresses, but then also bring alien aspects to our costumes. Cute. And then, of course, our sashes were tinfoil sashes. So that was a fun one. <laughs> That's awesome. And then how about you, Anna? What was your favorite Halloween costume ever? All right. I think my favorite one might be that one year I was R2-D2 and I wore roller skates. I remember that. That was amazing. That was what possibly may be my best Halloween costume ever. I don't know if I'll ever be able to reach the level again, but that was a really fun one. That was a really cool one. Anna had this dress, this R2-D2 dress, and she was on these roller skates just, like, whirring around. It was really cool. That was fun. Yeah, I got that dress on the internet. I had no idea what I was going to get. And it actually worked out totally fine. It looked really good. And then I also loved your uh, makeup. Very R2-D2. Thank you. Thank you. And then I bought this hat. It was a children Disney's hat. (laughs) (laughs) It worked out. R2-D2 that was supposed to flash. But yeah. That was that was a good one. I miss dressing up for Halloween. It just means that next year I'm going to have to double down. Oh, yeah, definitely. We're going to have to get super creative. Or we can dress up anyway. Post it on our Instagram. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we really love fall and Halloween and everything pumpkin spice and warm oh, fall colors. My favorite things. Trader Joe's has the pumpkin, the vanilla pumpkin candles out again. Ooh, yes. That's another thing. Anna and I love geeking out about the Trader Joe's Fall Hall. Ah, it's so good. You can't beat it. Uh Uh-uh. I was telling Anna, I was texting her. I I went to Trader Joe's and they had these yogi skeletons with little hairdos, but the hairdos were succulents. They're so cute. 
they were so adorable and i was just standing there like contemplating which yogi skeleton to get and i was very serious about this because i'm very serious when it comes to halloween decorating and i really stood there (laughs) i stood there like a little weirdo for 10 minutes just staring and nobody gave a crap no one cared at all about these skeletons except for me and then i realized what i was doing and i texted anna and Anna was like i feel you i get that i've done that at christmas time i always buy a poinsettia and i want to get the perfect poinsettia oh yeah i remember your poinsettias right so i look at all of them for way too long as you should right what if i i can't you can't make a bad choice but i want to make sure i'm making the perfect choice exactly you got to get your five dollars worth i really do my mom can like she has some for years like she can keep them for years that's incredible yeah i haven't every i'm like every year i'm like this will be the year i keep this alive and i haven't achieved that yet (laughs) maybe this year because I'll have nothing to do but watch it. There you go. That's true. Plants are now my friends. They really are. <laughs> Plants are the majority of my friends in this pandemic. <laughs> so I spend the most time with. All right. So we're doing UFOs, but specifically, I kind of knew about this. I actually didn't. We are doing, do you want to announce it? Project Blue Book. Woo! Yes. I didn't know what this was. Yes. Until Hannah brought it up. And then I Googled it and obviously went down the rabbit hole. It's so easy to go down rabbit holes when the two of us are researching, though. It super is. Especially this one, because it's so science fiction-y. Oh, yeah. For lack of a better adjective. (laughs) So true. But real quick, I wanted to wrap around to that intro. It was an account by Donald R. Carr, who was an aeronautical engineer from National City, California, And he reported this UFO sighting on May 13th, 1952. That's a long time ago. Oh, yeah. Where was this published? I'm going to get into this, but this was published in the text called The UFO Evidenced. And it's by NICAP, which is a civilian organization. And NICAP stands for National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. Ooh. Spooky. Spooky. (laughs) All right. For the first time in since we started this, I finally remembered. I'm proud of you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Should we introduce ourselves? Yes, let's do it. All right. I'm Henna. And I'm Anna. And this is... But, but it, it is, is Rocket, Rocket Science. Science. Please tell us about Project Blue Book. I need to know. Gladly. Project Blue Book was quite a spooky time in American history. If you ever catch yourself wondering about aliens, Area 51, UFO sightings, this is the project that has it all. Project Blue Book was this elaborate investigation led by the United States Air Force, headquartered at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is in Ohio. This investigation was specifically targeted at evaluating accounts of UFO sightings, and it took place from 1947 to 1969. To give a bit of historical context, Project Blue Book started about two years after World War II had ended, and it was terminated right around the time Apollo 11 launched to take the first people to the moon. That's really interesting that it terminated right around the time Apollo 11 launched. It is really interesting because it was all about like extraterrestrial intelligence. What's out there? Is there something smarter out there that could be a threat to national security? But then 
also designing this mission to send people to the moon for so many years right around that time. So it is really interesting. That's a good point, Anna. It's almost like they ended what in some ways was almost fear-mongering about what was out there in space. And they're like, all right, and now we're going to explore it. Exactly. And almost to like ensure, kind of give the public a feeling of safety. Yeah, exactly. I'd be curious to like go back in time and (laughs) actually know what was going on in the government's head. Yeah, really though. All right, back to the project. Over the course of this time of Project Blue Book's lifespan, 12,618 UFO sightings were reported to the Air Force. And of these, 701 remain unidentified. Spooky. (laughs) In Hannah's notes, she just wrote, ooh. Sometimes I catch this in your notes too, Anna. When Anna and I get really, really excited about our notes, then like you can tell that we're just adding random things from our brains. Like we're talking to ourselves almost as we're writing these notes down. Oh, completely. I think we can all remember the one time that the only thing I could say to express excitement was hold on to your pants. (laughs) Where are your pants going? (laughs) Like, why do you need to hold them? (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) But yeah, it is funny. You do too. It is very much like a stream of consciousness of what's happening in our brains. Oh, definitely. And then sometimes you can definitely tell in certain sections when we've had too much coffee. (laughs) Yeah, where all of a sudden it'll be like a tangent. With five exclamation points. (laughs) Yeah, that's two thirds of the page long. And you know, like you can tab to indent and it's got like 15 layers of like indents. I'm laughing so hard because this is exactly what we do. (laughs) Yeah. There was one time we opened them up and I had indented so far, it could only get like two or three words in the line. I remember that. (laughs) And I remember sitting there like, it didn't look that crazy when I took these. (laughs) We just get too excited. (laughs) There's a lot of good stuff out there. That's so true. All right. I'm sorry. Now that I've derailed us. (sighs) That was fun. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now that we've dipped our toes into the pool of Project Blue Book, let's dive in and learn some history. Project Blue Book wasn't the only military effort to investigate UFOs. The OG UFO research project was actually Project Sign that lasted about a year, with the conclusion that the UFO sightings were caused by real aircraft. But the aircraft were not Russian or American. They were actually extraterrestrial. And then this was rejected by the military due to lack of actual evidence. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean to laugh. It's just funny that in this time they're like, all right, we don't think they're American aircraft. We don't think they're Russian aircraft. Must be aliens. (laughs) Can't be anything else. (laughs) No, can't be anything else. And I'm not saying aliens isn't a possibility. I wasn't there. I don't know what they actually researched. But right. from that account, it sounds like maybe the Air Force was like, did you look at anything else? Exactly. <laughs> like, are there any other alternates? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Project Sign was rejected by the government. And then this was followed up by Project Grudge, which also lasted about a year. But it was canceled by military leadership when they found out that the Project Grudge personnel were on a mission to debunk all the sightings and concluded that all the sightings were due to some natural weather instances. However, 20% of those sightings were still unexplained. The U.S. government was unsatisfied with what Project Grudge was giving them. 
I think that brings up a really good point or an interesting point that the people they had to hire to do these jobs had to be a very specific kind of person. Exactly. They couldn't be too skeptical and they couldn't be on a mission to debunk. Exactly. That's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah. As I was reading this, that's what I realized was that you can't hire leadership who will take this project seriously when they think the people who are reporting these UFO sightings are crazy. They actually have to listen and have genuine interest in exploring these sightings. Yeah. Like you need somebody who's not biased either way. Right. Actually, this conversation that we're having actually leads me into my next point really well. After Project Grudge was terminated, Project Blue Book was born. In the early 1950s, it was led by Captain Edward Ruppelt, who was the first director of the project. The reason I spend more time talking about him than other leaders was actually because of what Anne and I were just talking about. He was a leader who truly was genuinely interested in finding the root cause of these sightings. A fun fact about Project Blue Book, it was named after the little blue books students got to take to their exams in college, and Ruppelt said that the name was symbolic of the military personnel giving the investigation the same level of importance as a student would give to their exam. Do you think he was allowed to tell people what he did for a living? You know, that's a really good question. He did publish a book in the 1950s while Blue Book was going on about UFO sightings, so I think so. So probably. Could I'm just imagining that conversation. Like, you know, if you meet people and they're like, what do you do for a living? And it's like, well, I lead up a committee investigating UFO sightings. <laughs> You're like, wow, that, you win most interesting at this dinner party I'm having in my head. <laughs> Actually... I would have loved to be alive during this era because... You really would have liked this a lot. (laughs) Anna knows how much of a weirdo I am about this stuff. You're not weird. (laughs) You just like it a lot. I'm not saying I don't like it, but Hannah likes it more. (laughs) But, like, could you imagine how... Right now, nobody talks about UFOs. But back then, thousands and thousands of UFO sightings... Like, this was a regular dinner topic. This was very regularly shown in the news... It's such an interesting snippet in history. We were on the very cusp of some major scientific discoveries. Exactly. Exactly. But there was still so much that was not understood. Just about, like, they didn't, uh, about really, I'm trying to think of a word. There was just so much that was not understood about so many different fields of science. Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially outer space. Yes. Because that's right around the time when we started launching the first satellites and the first people. Outer space was truly a black box to us. It really was. And so it led for so much room for skepticism and speculation. Yes, exactly. And I actually, in so many ways, I think we feel like we know space now, but we really don't. Oh, yeah. It's still a monster. Like, it's still an unknown monster around us. If you were to take like a drop of water out of the ocean, that is how much we know of space. Yeah, I love that. Exactly. I think I stole that from Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> Thank you, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Thanks, NGT. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's so cool. <laughs> he really is. Sorry, I distracted you with my metaphorical dinner party. Oh, no, you're fine. That'd be a good answer, though, to that icebreaker question. Like, who could you have dinner with if you could have dinner with anybody? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that would be a good one. Let's go back to Repelt. 
From what I read, Ruppelt was a phenomenal director. He treated his job seriously. He made it clear to those working on the project that each case was important. And then he defined a system of reporting UFOs with specific questionnaires. He made certain changes to normalize the people who were reporting these sightings. I don't know what specifically these changes were. I couldn't find them. But, you know, there was a stigma. We've referred to it. There was a stigma surrounding the people who reported these UFOs. And he wanted to make sure that we normalize the people who are reporting these UFO sightings. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I also think in many ways it was like, look, if you come forward and say you saw a UFO, we're not all going to think you're crazy. Yes, that's true. You're right. It encouraged people to come forth with their sightings. And at that time, the U.S. government truly believed there could be something here. So we should investigate it. And we need all the evidence possible to do a solid investigation. Interesting. And then also, when anyone on his team became too skeptical of the project goals, he terminated them immediately. Whoa. Uh-huh. Serious, serious manager. So... Rappelt was the first person to create the term unidentified flying object as an alternate to flying saucer, which Anna will give us the background of later. (laughs) (laughs) It's a much more serious term. (laughs) Yeah, right? Also during his time, some famous UFO sightings occurred, and I'm going to go into one of them, the Lubbock Lights. To understand this, let's go ahead and take a time machine back to 1951. Specifically, a nice summer night in August. It's about 9 p.m. You have three professors, Dr. A.G. Oberg, who's a chemical engineer, Dr. W.L. Ducker, who's a department head and petroleum engineer, and Dr. W.I. Robinson, a geologist. And they're all sitting in the backyard when they see 20 to 30 lights fly by over them in a time span of a few seconds. Whoa. Yeah. Freaky stuff. So they reported the sighting to a local paper. This was particularly famous because it was reported by three professors. Three people that society deemed credible and intelligent. Exactly. That's exactly the reason I bring this up. It gives context into how intense this time was. Reputable scientists were submitting sightings. The Lubbock lights were found to be not spaceships, but actually caused by a natural phenomenon that wasn't particularly detailed out by the Air Force because they wanted to maintain the privacy of the scientists that submitted the explanation, which I thought was very interesting. How could the scientists' identity be given away by the explanation? Yeah, right. that was confusing to me too. Yeah, that confused me. And I was like, was the scientist a... Was he the natural phenomenon? Was he the natural phenomenon? Or did he come up with some theory that was widely known at the time? Who knows? I also just want to express that we're using the pronoun he because at this time they were all men. That's right. Yes. We're not just saying only men can be scientists, obviously. Obviously. Hello. (laughs) Hello. The Lubbock lights were constituted due to a natural phenomena. All right. Interesting. Interesting. Let's get back to the grand story that is Project Blue Book. Grand. (laughs) It is grand. (laughs) Every Air Force base at the time had an officer dedicated to Blue Book. And I was kind of wondering, I was wondering if these poor officers, were they harassed or were they deemed like, like that was a legitimate job? 
I almost wonder if they gave it to people who didn't want the job. Like, I don't know if it would be something to be like, if you want it, that means you're too biased in the direction of believing it, so we won't give it to you. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, that's such a good point. That they're like, the best leaders are the people who don't want power. (laughs) So I'm just imagining some poor guy was like, this is your job. He's like, how did I end up here? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think it would be fun, but maybe they wouldn't give me the job because of that. Yeah, exactly. At this time, there was also a notable astronomer in the mix, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, and he was the scientific consultant for the project. He joined the project in the 1950s and worked to turn the investigation of UFOs into a serious scientific study. He went so far as to establish the Center of UFO Studies, and he published several books on it. In one of these books, he creates the classification close encounter. I'll read the definition directly from the Wikipedia page of close encounter. So go Google close encounter and click on the Wikipedia page link. It's very interesting. And here's the definition. In ufology, a close encounter is an event in which a person witnesses an unidentified flying object. Sightings more than 500 feet, 150 meters, from the witness are classified as daylight discs, nocturnal lights, or radar visual reports. Sightings within about 500 feet, 150 meters, are subclassified as various types of close encounters. Whoa. Yes. That's cool. What really amazed me was the term ufology. <laughs> That's a good term. <laughs> And the fact that Wikipedia used it. (laughs) I also like, because if you think about it, UFO is an acronym for unidentified flying object. So it's like unidentified flyingology. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point, too. (laughs) I mean, I'm here for it. Yeah, me too. I'm all for it. And this terminology actually inspired the Steven Spielberg movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was a 1977 science fiction movie that follows the life of Roy, as he witnesses a UFO sighting. It sounds like a fun movie. I haven't seen it, but I want to add it to my Halloween movie list. It's a really good movie. How long ago did you watch it? Um, a couple years ago. Yeah. This makes me want to watch it again, though. Really? Okay, I'm definitely going to watch it then. I was curious, so I googled it. It's got a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, no so. way. Yeah, it's a really good movie. Highly recommend. You should watch this one and then Contact. Oh, yeah. I read the book Contact. Oh, I have actually never read that book. It's by Carl Sagan, right? Yes, Carl Sagan. It was. It's a good one. And the movie's good, too. The movie is good. Mm. I should read the book. Yes. So now we've got some spooky movies to add to our October movie list. All right. So now that we've learned about science consultant Hynek, let's get back to Rupelt, the director of the program. He remained director until about 1953, and then he left. So he had a short term. Yeah, when did he start? He was the first director. So when Project Blue Book started up, which was 1947. Okay, six years. Six years, not too short. Yeah, I get what you mean, though. Yeah. For the next decade, Project Blue Book went through a number of directors, most of them having anti-UFO beliefs, And they were of the mindset that anyone who sees a UFO is crazy. These are not my words. It's from what I read. (laughs) 
I like to be a bit of a believer to keep the fun and imagination alive in me. I admired Rupelt for his let's treat this like a real investigation attitude. I agree. And if nothing else, like if you have credible people coming forward, professionals risking their professional credibility to tell you something, I feel like it's worth digging into what's going on there. Oh, definitely. You know, it may not be UFOs. Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's fast forward to about 1966. During this time, there was a set of UFO sightings across Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Some of these were reported by police officers. And these sightings were the cause of a congressional hearing by the House Committee on Armed Services. I found this so fascinating. Literally everything I've read and found about Blue Book the reputable people involved, the lengths to which the U.S. went on to investigate these UFO sightings. What a time. The fact that they held a congressional hearing for some of these sightings. Whoa. I didn't realize that. Yeah, me neither until I found this in my research. These sightings were eventually justified with natural phenomena. But during this time, a civilian organization for understanding UFO sightings had formed. This organization was called NICAP, which I mentioned right when we started this episode. NICAP stands for National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And right around this time, its membership had reached about 15,000 people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people for a national organization. There are some colleges that don't have that many people. Right? (laughs) That's what I was thinking. (laughs) And then also, I came across their original document that these committee members had written up, and it's titled The UFO Evidence. That's where I got that account, the UFO sighting account from, that we read earlier in the episode. And I'll have that linked in our sources. It's really cool and eerie, almost, to look through. I found it on the CIA website. You found it on the CIA website? Yeah, so the CIA has a library of government documents, And they had this. Whoa. Yeah. I found that fascinating. I was fascinated that isn't part of the airforce.gov library and it was the CIA, but I guess all the government agencies are linked somehow. And Well, it's interesting to me that it was deemed important enough to go on a government agency website. Yes. Mm -hmm. This document is pretty cool. It's broken into sections and each section groups together UFO sightings by the type of occupation of the people that reported them. For example, in the UFO evidence, section five is for observations by military and airline pilots. Section six is for observations by scientists and engineers. And section seven is for observations by civilians. This organization was no joke. They legitimately were organized and very much researching during this time. I even found one of their budgetary reports as I was crawling through the CIA library. They had a budget? They had a $40,000 yearly budget. Whoa, especially in, that was the 70s or the 60s? 60s. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And there was a pie chart in this document that described the breakdown of the members. 50% were under the category trained slash experienced, which meant professional pilots, scientists, etc. <laughs> they had a pie chart. <laughs> they did. 
<laughs> they were very serious. That is just so funny. It's like, I'm a nerd. I'm not saying this as an insult, but this organization is like, we're going to make a pie chart about it. All right. They were more organized than any sort of college organization that I was in. Like, Oh, straight up. The types of documents that we had, we never had a breakdown of the membership, you know? Oh, not at all. Well, I was the treasurer for the Mechanical Engineering Honor Society at one point, and I was just like, we're just throwing this together as we go. <laughs> like, yeah, story of my college life. <laughs> uh, <sighs> all right. Going back to the fact that the group's membership had spiked in the late 1960s, in response to this and the increase in UFO sightings, the Condon Committee was created in 1966. This was also known as the University of Colorado UFO Project, and it was supposed to be a neutral scientific research body. The committee was led at the University of Colorado under the direction of Edward Condon, a physicist. The University of Colorado published a report called The Scientific Study of Unidentified Flying Objects and presented this to the Air Force. The overall conclusion that this report provided was that there was no evidence that indicated that the sightings were a result of a superior intelligence, and the report said that there wasn't a threat to national security from these sightings. Upon review of this report, Project Blue Book had been concluded or terminated in 1969. Project Blue Book has been an incredible chapter in our history. If this was taught in AP US history, I would have definitely <laughs> not had to cram for that test. <laughs> Oof. I would have definitely been excited to learn about it through the entire unit. <laughs> that is cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Those are all the notes I have, but... Just in summary, during this time, through the 1950s and 1960s, there were so many scientists, physicists, engineers, astronomers involved during this project and involved in these sightings. But also, mass hysteria definitely played into it. Think about it. If you have multiple neighbors seeing lights in the sky, you will likely try to see them too. Rupelt actually wrote a book that goes into this mass hysteria, and he describes it in his book titled The Report on Unidentified Objects, which I'll also link in our sources. But to end my section, I will end on the note that 12,618 UFO sightings were reported, but still 701 remain unidentified. Ooh. <laughs> I don't, I'm not very good at sound effects. I loved it. I tried really hard, though. Spooky. Thanks. You did good, too. That was a good teamwork. That was awesome. Thanks, Anna. That was super interesting. Yeah, I had a great time researching it, and I'm really excited to hear about what you have. I'm psyched to tell you all, but should we take a little break first? Yes, let's take a break. We'll be back. Ooh. We'll be back. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. It's too hot in my apartment, so I didn't turn my oven on to preheat it. I know you were all curious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Usually we'll record our episodes in the evenings, and if you've been following our episodes, you'll know that right around this time, Anna's oven will beep, <laughs> indicating it's almost time for dinner. Ah, I love dinner. I think I'm going to make a sandwich. 
Oh, yum. I actually ate a sandwich right before this. Nice. I love a good sandwich. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. You ready to hear about the first modern UFO sighting? Yes, I'm so excited. This was fun. What is considered to be the first modern-day UFO sighting was sighted, seen, reported by a man named Kenneth Arnold, who was an American aviator and businessman. He was born in Sebeka, Minnesota in 1915, and he started the Great Western Fire Control Supply in Boise, Idaho in 1940. They sold and installed fire suppression systems. I was curious about this. I guess I didn't realize that they worried about fires in 1940 to the extent that they would have fire control systems. Which made me wonder when they started worrying about lead paint, and that wasn't banned for use in residences until 1978. (laughs) An excellent example of one of our rabbit holes. Right? I was like, (laughs) they didn't worry about lead yet, but they probably (laughs) just didn't know. So actually, on the content you came here for, on June 24th, 1947, Arnold was flying near Mount Rainier in Washington State. When he saw a series of bright fra- he saw a series of bright flashes in the distance. He thought they could be reflections off his airplane windows. However, he couldn't determine that that was the cause. He then claims that he saw nine unusual shiny objects flying in tandem. Spooky. Ooh, I know. I'm imagining like a V formation. Yeah, that's what I was thinking in my head too. He was curious about their speed and timed how long it took them to get from Rainier to nearby Mount Adams, a distance of 50, 50 miles. I wrote 50 people. I don't quite know <laughs> what I was trying to say there. A distance of 50 miles. Arnold then used this and estimated their speed to be around 1,200 miles per hour or 1,932 kilometers per hour. I first read this and I was like, whoa, oh my God, that's crazy. No object can go that fast. For reference, the speed of sound in dry air is 770 miles per hour, or 1,238 kilometers per hour. That would be called Mach 1. So this was like Mach 1.3, we're going to say. However, the record for the fastest speed of a jet-powered aircraft was set by NASA's X-34A hypersonic scramjet on November 16, 2004, with a top speed of Mach 9.6 or about 7,000 miles per hour, or 11,265 kilometers per hour. Wow. Yeah, I just thought that was insane. But at the same point, that was 2004, and we're talking about 1947. At the time, the fastest manned aircraft could only reach a speed of Mach 1.07. To note, this was set by Captain Charles E., or Chuck Yeager, who was piloting the Bell X-1. And it actually did not happen until October of 1947. It was technically four months after Arnold's object sighting. But for the sake of this, we're going to say at the time, there was no manned aircraft that could reach that speed. Yeah. I also find it so impressive that he went on to calculate, like to figure out, you know, how fast these objects were going. That he was thinking rationally enough to be like, all right, let's time them covering a distance I know. Like, all right. Right. And, like, acting so immediately on that, too. Yeah. I was pretty impressed there. <laughs> yeah. Arnold described them as having a saucer or disc shape. He also used the words pie pan and half moon, among others. He described their motion as, like, a saucer skipping across the water. This is actually how the term flying saucer was originated. There is some... What do you call that when you're unsure about something? Debate. There is some debate about this. However, (laughs) it's thought that the Chicago Sun was the first to use the term 
when they published a story about Arnold's sighting on June 26, 1947. Arnold's story became very popular with the press, and he became a minor celebrity. Interestingly enough, his story was partially corroborated by a prospector named Fred Johnson. I actually had to Google this, because I was like, (laughs) a prospector isn't a real job. All I could think about was when you were in, I don't know, elementary or middle school, and you learned about the gold rush and the prospectors. And they'd be the ones with, like, the sieves in the water trying to find gold. Yeah, or, like, a pickaxe and overalls. Yeah, exactly. I was like, that's not a real job anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I actually had to Google this. But according to the OED, or the Oxford English Dictionary, a prospector is a person who searches an area for gold, minerals, oil, etc. So, there are prospectors, and I don't just search for gold. Johnson was on Mount Adams on June 24th and reported that he saw six round objects that were tapered and, in quotes, sharply to a point in the head in an oval shape through his telescope. The American Air Force actually interviewed him and deemed Johnson a credible witness. And interestingly enough, his report was the first one to be listed as the first unexplained UFO report in Air Force files, while Arnold's was just classified as a mirage. That's so interesting. Yeah, they technically said they saw the same thing. Right, and Arnold was the one who, like, provided numbers and calculations for the speed of these objects. Exactly. What they saw should essentially be the same thing. Exactly. However, Arnold is considered the originator of the first widely reported modern UFO sighting. Even though his wasn't in the Air Force report, by society, I will say. The community as a whole. So they both win a little bit. Johnson gets his report in the Air Force files, and Arnold becomes famous for his sighting. They both win a little bit. Good way to put it. After Arnold's initial reporting, hundreds of similar sightings from not only within the U.S., but around the world started flooding in. Hannah actually touched on this, but this began a sort of mass hysteria regarding UFO sightings. Interestingly enough, this was a similar time to the second Red Scare, According to History.com, in quotes, the Red Scare was hysteria over the perceived threat posed by communists in the U.S. The second Red Scare occurred right after World War II, which would be a very similar timeline to this UFO sighting. That's really interesting. Yeah. So if you remember, if if you're in the U.S., you would have learned about the Red Scare in school. It was this period, a very interesting period in U.S. history. People would be like, my neighbor is a communist for no apparent reason. Stuff like that. Fascinating. Yeah, so it was kind of just an interesting, like, they were already afraid about communism, and there was this hysteria about communism, so it's just an interesting, psychologically, I wonder if those had some relation to each other. That's so interesting, just like the general fear around this time over a threat to national security. Exactly. Very well said. On July 4th, the crew of a commercial United Airlines flight over Idaho en route to Seattle claimed to have seen five to nine disc-like objects that kept pace with their plane for 10 to 15 minutes before disappearing. That's freaky. Could you imagine sitting on a plane and looking out at night and then there's just this light following? Yeah. Or keeping pace with you? Yeah, absolutely not. That would freak me out. That would freak me out too. I'd say I would definitely see it and be freaked out, but I'd probably be asleep. (laughs) (laughs) It was speculated that the objects were a new kind of plane being tested by the U.S. military. However, they denied having any planes in that area of Mount Rainier at the time of the sighting. Curiously, after World War II, the United States Air Force were working to develop new kinds of aircraft. 
two of which were the Flying Wing and the Flying Flapjack. The Flying Wing, or Northrop YB-35, was an experimental heavy bomber, which used the Flying Wing design, but had no fuselage or tail. It was just the wing section. Interesting. It's like if you take the wings of an airplane and make them a lot fatter, and that's your whole plane. Wow. Yeah, it's cool. I highly recommend you look at pictures if you're interested. And then there's the Flying Flapjack, or the Vought XF-5U, which was an experimental Navy fighter aircraft, which made a flat sort of disc-shaped body. So if I, I looked at pictures of these, if you're curious, I recommend you look them up too. Both of these have a shape, which look to me like they could be mistaken for UFOs, especially that one that's just the wing body. Mm-hmm. However, they were not capable of reaching the speeds Arnold says the objects were. And again, the military stated that they were not testing any planes at that location that day. I'm just looking this up right now. Flying Flapjack. Yeah. And the Flying Wing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Flying Flapjack definitely looks UFO-esque. Right? Yeah. That's... I have never seen something like this. You have to look it up. Yeah, it looks crazy. Yeah. I saw that and I was like, all right, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And same with the Flying Wing. Flying Wing looks more like a plane that you'll see in history books, but the Flying Flapjack just looks... It's just so different. It's just, it's a disc. Right. So weird. From far away, I could see how both of those could be mistaken for UFOs. Definitely. But the military says they weren't testing any planes in that place at that time. But, I don't know, food for thought. Oh, yeah. I just put a dot, 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 because I didn't know how to end that. (laughs) (laughs) Spooky. (laughs) Ooh. The Air Force initially brushed Arnold's sightings off as a mirage. However, it did in part lead to the creation of Project Blue Book. Sweet. And then, interestingly enough, Donald Menzel, who is a Harvard astronomer and one of the original UFO debunkers, offered many possible explanations for Arnold sightings over the years, some of which included clouds of snow that had blown from Mount Rainier, water spots on the plane window, orographic clouds or wave clouds. What's an orographic cloud? All right, you got to Google it. Googling it. Oh, interesting. So it does look right? like a disc. It looks like a UFO-shaped cloud. So you know how sometimes when you're sitting at the park and you look up and you try to make shapes out of the clouds? This orographic cloud looks like a UFO. Yeah, and it has something to do with lift. And I think they particularly happen mostly around mountains or at higher elevations. It's when air mass is forced from a low elevation to a higher elevation as it moves over rising terrain. Oh, interesting. That was directly from Wikipedia. (laughs) But it creates these clouds that literally look like UFOs. Yeah, they're disc-shaped and they're not super fluffy like standard clouds. They look different, yeah. No, they're really crazy looking. Again, Google that. (laughs) I mean, all of those are possible explanations, but there's no way to really know. And it kind of leads me into a point that I wanted to make. An important note to end this one is that the internet is going to give you what you want when it comes to UFO sightings. If you want to find stories convincing you it's real, you can find that. If you want to find a bunch of reasons of people telling you why it's all fake, you can find that too. At the end of the day, use your best judgment, and it's up to you what you do or do not want to believe. And check your sources. Yes, agreed. Beautifully said, Anna. Thank you. This was a fun one. 
this was it was a lot of fun it was like still aerospace themed but also spooky and perfect for the halloween vibes yeah we gotta you know embrace it definitely cooler weather's coming put on a sweater learn about ufos drink some pumpkin spice lattes learn about ufos (laughs) eat a piece of pie learn about ufos eat some halloween candy learn about ufos we could do this forever that's so i'm working from home and i'm really fortunate me too yep but i don't buy myself halloween see this is a big bummer (laughs) yeah i would get it from work right and now it just feels like am i gonna go to the store now and buy myself a bag of halloween candy i think i'm going to have to (laughs) on one hand i'm like i'm probably gonna have to because this is really the only time of the year where i ever eat like snickers bars every single evening after work (laughs) Yeah, because nothing about, like, I love candy and sweets, but if I'm going to get a treat, I'm not going to get a Snickers bar. I'm going to get a piece of cake or something or a nicer chocolate bar because I've apparently woke up one day and became a boring adult. (laughs) But something about this time of year, I just desperately want Snickers and Kit Kats. Kit Kats. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Yes. And peanut butter cups. Ah, so good. So good. All that good stuff. I know. So I'm probably, you're just going to find me alone in my apartment (laughs) eating Halloween candy, dressed in a Halloween costume while watching Netflix, going nowhere. (laughs) Same, same. (laughs) Uh, All right. Do you want to tell everyone where they can find us, Anna? Yeah, sure thing. You can find us on Instagram at ButItIsRocketScience. You can find us on Twitter at ButItIsRS. You can go to our website if you want to learn a little bit more about us, shoot us an email, tell us you like the podcast, recommend episode topics for the future. Let us know. You can go to our website, but it is rocketscience.com. And then if you really want to make our day, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcast. That'll help us get some more visibility. It means a lot to us. Yeah, it means a lot. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. We love hearing from you all. Yes, we do. We'll message each other screenshots of the messages we get because we get so excited. We do. It's so nice. It, like, makes my whole day. (laughs) All right. Why don't we get into our sources? Sweet. Do you want to go first? Sure thing. All right. So I used Wikipedia a bunch to look up Lubbock Lights, get some background on Project Blue Book, get information about the term Close Encounter and Steven Spielberg's movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I also used Wikipedia for NICAP and the Condon Committee. Beyond Wikipedia, I found J. Allen Hynek's biography on biography.com. I used archives.gov for the Air Force UFOs. I also used sci-fi.com for the term flying saucer and where it originated from. I used the spokesman.com for an article titled UFOs over Washington, first report of the flying saucer. The CIA.gov library which I mentioned earlier for that PDF from the NICAP committee. And then I also sourced Edward Ruppelt's book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. I used another CIA.gov website for the NICAP committee's budget. Perfect. Wonderful. And how about you, Anna? What were your sources? All right. I used history.com to learn about the most infamous UFO sightings, which brought me to Kenneth Arnold. So then I use the Wikipedia page for both Kenneth... There are two Wikipedia pages. There's one about Kenneth Arnold, and there's one specifically about Kenneth Arnold's UFO sighting. I use Science Daily to... Just as a reference for the speed of sound, 
nasa.gov to learn about the X-43. And then I used wire.com to learn about how the first time Mach 1 was broken by Jaeger in 1947. I used the I went to the Oxford Learners Dictionaries.com to get the definition for prospector. <laughs> I used Wikipedia for both the Vought XF5U and the Northrop YB35. So that would be the Flying Flapjack and the Flying Wing. I used the CDC website and pointed about lead paint. I know that's really important. <laughs> I used history.com and Wikipedia for the Red Scare. Fabulous. I had a good time. Me too. I feel sufficiently spooked. Me too. As we should during this time. <laughs> as we should. I'm going to go make a sandwich and think about how I need to go buy some Halloween candy. That's exactly what I was going to go look up now is where can I order some Halloween candy for myself? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, do you, do they, I was like, I guess I buy it at the grocery store. <laughs> yeah. Or I'll just go grab it from the grocery store now. But it is going to be on top of my list to get. Very top. All right, we will talk to you soon. Yes. You ready to close it out? I am ready. Let's do this. Until next time, space cadets. T minus three, two, one, liftoff. Lift off.